Breathing through the nose, you harness nasal nitric oxide, which can be very helpful because it's antiviral, antibacterial. It redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. It increases the pressure of oxygen in the, in the blood by 10%. This has been known since 1988. Nasal breathing also has greater recruitment of the diaphragm. Diaphragm breathing muscle, of course, is not just for respiration. It assists in lymphatic drainage and also mm. providing stabilization for the spine. So 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing patterns. And the diaphragm is also connected with the emotions. Breathing through the nose helps to slow down breathing. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. I'm very thrilled today to be joined all the way from Ireland is Patrick McEwen. Welcome, Patrick. Great. Thanks very much, Nathan. Good to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Patrick, you're a real pioneer of uh, proper breathing. So today we want to look at all angles of breathing. It's it's probably a bit of a confusing area, and I'm sure you've heard this many times before. There's probably some skepticism around, you know, breathing. It's just a, a normal autonomic process. Um, and then on the flip side, there's a lot of advocates. Some of these, like biohackers and um, people in the wellness industry, are right into it. And then more from the sort of mystical and spiritual side, there's all these different breathing exercises, which sometimes seem contradictory and confusing. So. Uh, I reached out today because I think you've got a really good handle of it and you've spent the you know best part of your adult life um, in this space and you can help clarify and also really argue that we should consider breathing as important as diet, exercise and sleep. So um, let's start from the start because it sounds like you had this real sort of turning point in your own life and career that really led down this um, path left less travelled. So Perhaps if you can just get, describe your, your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I was a kid growing up in the east coast of Ireland having asthma, as so many kids do. And when you have asthma, you also have a stuffy nose. So in constant, I was having constant wheezing, taking medication daily. My asthma was getting worse, but it wasn't just my asthma. My sleep was very poor, but I never put the connection together. If you have a stuffy nose, you're more likely to be a mouth breather. And if you're a mouth breather, you're more likely to breathe fast and shallow. So breathing through the mouth, persistent mouth breathing, will tend to have greater recruitment of the upper chest and a faster respiratory rate. This, in turn, can contribute to sleep disorder breathing. So it's known that any person with a stuffy nose or with nasal obstruction, they have two to three times the risk of moderate to severe sleep disorder breathing. I was waking up tired every morning. Uh, when I went to university, I was told by the students when I was staying in dorms that I was snoring heavily, but then I would stop breathing. So I didn't realize I had undiagnosed sleep apnea. So just, I suppose, Nathan, when I look back at it, things could have been a lot easier. I went to medical doctors for 20 years, you know, looking for medication. I was hospitalized a few times. Nobody ever told me to breathe through my nose. Not one doctor in the space of the asthma realm encouraged me to breathe through the nose and I would have been a persistent mouth breather. I wouldn't have been walking into the doctor's surgery with my mouth closed because my nose was chronically stuffed up. It's a very uncomfortable state to be. And of course, I'm not alone. There are millions of kids like this. But breathing is just that one thing that it just, and I think you pointed it that I think um, it has been put so left of field and people spouting all of this stuff about breathing. And medical doctors then on the right of field aren't interested, but breathing is really something in the middle. And my journey started when I read this newspaper article about the importance of breathing light. And it kind of struck me because I was ne doing neither of these things. I was neither nose breathing nor breathing light. And this is what the article was saying. And I can give you a couple of stories. I remember going in to do a university exam back in 1996, and it was a finals. I was a mouth breather, fast breather, upper chest breather. And physiologically, I was in that increased sympathetic drive. And you as a youngster going in to do an exam and feeling anxious about it, I decided to take a walk for about two to three minutes before going into the exam hall. And during that walk, I took these full big breaths because 
that's the idea that's soft and espoused out there. You know, you're feeling stressed. You want to calm down. Take these full big breaths. So for two to three minutes, that's all. I took these full big breaths and I went into the exam hall and I was all over the place. I was spaced out. I was lightheaded. I remember sitting down and my head was totally messed up. And it took me quite a few minutes to regain composure. So, you know, my childhood and teenage years in terms of going, going through academia. And I left school at 14, never to go back to school again. And it was borne out by a sense of frustration because I didn't have the capacity and energy levels to concentrate and hold attention. And education, it teaches us how to, it teaches us how to think. And, you know, in order to do well in education, we need to be able to concentrate, but it does not teach us how to concentrate. We need deep sleep for this, but we also need functional breathing. And we need to have a calmness and a quietness of the mind and also balance in the autonomic nervous system. So when you talk about breathing, there is nothing hippy-dippy about breathing. It's really so important that people realize the potential here. And I would like to pull apart, you know, to shed some light on the confusion. But when I read that article, I started switching to nasal breathing. And I remember sitting there and I started breathing less air, doing the opposite to what was being told. And I could feel the increased sensation of warmth coming into my hands. I never had warm hands. I always had cold hands and cold feet and I had brain fog. I also remember doing the nose and blocking exercise. I was able to open up my nose. And that night I taped my mouth closed. Now I also wore a nasal dilator to nice. help open up the nasal passages. The first morning I woke up, I, didn't, I don't remember much waking up the first morning of the difference in quality of sleep. But all the second day I persisted with nasal breathing. I wore the tape again in my mouth that night, wore nasal dilators, and I woke up the next morning. It was the best night's sleep I had, I had in about 15 years. Now, this is so simple, Nathan. And I've been teaching it full time. It'll be 20 years by March the 17th of this year. We celebrate our 20th year anniversary. It has been overlooked. It has been a shame. It has been overlooked. Because when we think of breathing, breathing is very complex and it's multidimensional. And just to give you a nutshell, it can help open up the airways. Breathing through the nose, you harness nasal nitric oxide, which can be very helpful because it's antiviral, antibacterial. It redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. It increases the pressure of oxygen in the, in the blood by 10%. This has been known since 1988. Nasal breathing also has greater recruitment of the diaphragm. Diaphragm breathing muscle, of course, is not just for respiration. It assists in lymphatic drainage and also mm. providing stabilization for the spine. So 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing patterns. And the diaphragm is also connected with the emotions. Breathing through the nose helps to slow down breathing. Slow mm. breathing is very important for the balance in the autonomic nervous system because if, for example, we are breathing through the mouth and there's no real way to diagnose mouth breathing. You know, when somebody comes in to me, you're kind of using your own observation and common sense. Does this person have their mouth open persistently? And maybe human beings, we don't have our mouth open 100% of the time in most instances. But 50% of the adult population breathe through an open mouth. And many of the adult population and childhood population, it's between 25 to 50% of studied children. They will have their mouth open during sleep but also right. if they do any light physical exercise, and especially if they're distracted. So, you know, what can we do when it comes to breathing? We, look, we need to look at breathing from a biochemical dimension. And the biochemical dimension is focused on the tolerance to carbon dioxide or sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide in the blood. If we are breathing too hard and too fast, and we remove too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs, so this is called hyperventilation and if we're doing it chronically it's chronic hyperventilation but it's a gray area and it's difficult to pinpoint because not everybody with the symptoms of hyperventilation have low co2 so it can be a difficult one to pick up on but when we look at what we can do when we have somebody switch to nose breathing and to breathe less air to reduce their sensitivity to carbon dioxide we use the BOLD score as a determinant of whether a person is progressing. We also then look at the biomechanics. 
Because I will always say to my students, if you breathe through your open mouth, look at your chest and you will see that your open mouth breathing is activating the upper chest. Now, how many breathing modalities encourage abdominal breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, but they don't encourage their students to persistently breathe through the nose? You are not going to get a long-term successful outcome. If you're teaching focusing on the biomechanics, but neglecting the importance of nasal breathing, it's not going to work. And then we look at resonance frequency breathing or cadence breathing, simply slowing down the respiratory rate down to six breaths per minute on average to help stimulate the vagus nerve to improve the sensitivity of the baroreflex. Now, if I was to look at the hierarchy of needs in the human being, I would start off with sleep. And breathing plays a role in sleep. So, for example, with obstructive sleep apnea, with insomnia and with snoring. And if we don't get good deep quality, deep sleep quality, I think we are not going to be on a a good setting, regardless of our diet, regardless of the amount of mindfulness that one is practicing. We have to get the sleep right, and nasal breathing is instrumental to this. Now, this is not new information. One doctor called Dr. Christian Gimeno, who coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea, he's a Stanford-based medical doctor. He passed away in, in 2019. But I remember him, the last five or six years of his life, he devoted a lot of papers to the importance of restoring nasal breathing during sleep for both the pediatric population, but also the adult population. And I remember him when I was in Bordeaux, I was giving a talk. Sometimes our paths would cross. And he stood up in the room. These were all sleep sleep medicine doctors. And he stood up and he says, you have missed the elephant in the room here. There were about 200 healthcare professionals there. And he said the elephant in the room is breathing in and out through the nose. Mm. We know that snoring is amplified. We know that obstructive sleep apnea, the severity is made worse. The AHI index, the AHI, which is the index of sleep apnea severity, is increased with mouth breathing. And yet there's very little emphasis on the importance of nasal breathing during sleep. And we also know if you have sleep disorder breathing, it's going to contribute to mental health issues. But it's going to also play play a role in messing up hormones such as leptin and ghrelin. Mm. So we're going to have a tendency then that diet is impacted. But stress levels are also impacted because we all know that when we have a lousy night's sleep, you're not able to focus the next day, you're not able to concentrate, and you're more likely to be irritable. So breathing and sleep go together. And then, you know, very oftentimes people are talking about the importance of mindfulness and And I think mindfulness is wonderful, but 75% of the anxiety and panic disorder population have dysfunctional breathing. 75%. So here you have a cohort that's going to their their psychotherapist, their psychologist, their counselors, wherever they are going. But how many healthcare professionals are actively looking at the client's breathing as the client walks in the door? Mm. How many are asking... Does this client have sleep disorder breathing? Does this client breathe fast and hard or using the upper chest? Do they have irregular breathing patterns? Do they have a faster respiratory rate? Do they have a natural pause following exhalation? How can you assess for functional breathing patterns? And yes, the psychotherapist may say, yes, I focus on breathing. But do you really? How far do you go with with breathing? Because if somebody comes in, with panic disorder, what I want to do is I want to improve their biochemistry first. I give them small breath holes to help stimulate the vagus nerve to increase blood flow to the brain. I also want to expose them to air hunger, to gently desensitize their body's reaction to air hunger. So, for example, last night I had an individual working with him and we had to go so, so gentle with him because if I went in too strongly with the air hunger, it initiated a fear response. So he has a very yeah. strong reaction to the feeling of suffocation. So it's very important then to tailor the exercises to that individual. And then with breathe light to help improve blood flow, but also to stimulate the vagus nerve, dampen the stress response and increase the body's parasympathetic response. I have people take a very soft and slow, gentle breath in through the nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle breath out, but to underbreathe to actually breathe less air to the point of air hunger. And when we know there's air hunger, we know that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood because carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. Mm. 
And with the increased carbon dioxide in the blood, it's a vasodilator. So it's helping to increase blood flow. And this can have a calming effect on the central nervous system. But we also have a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So as carbon dioxide increases and blood pH drops, there's a right shift of the ODC. So hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen, will release oxygen more readily. And this is not known, it seems, Mm. in healthcare circles, because if it was known that carbon dioxide is a catalyst or a key for hemoglobin to release oxygen to the tissues and organs, surely healthcare professionals wouldn't be encouraging their students to take full big breaths. And here's the thing. It's because breathing is multidimensional. I, in my background, originally with Buteco, I focused so much on the biochemistry but I ignored the biomechanics. Yeah. The physiotherapist very much focuses on the, the biomechanics, but they ignore the biochemistry and they ignore resonance frequency breathing. The heart math instructor or heart rate variability instructor is focusing on resonance frequency breathing, but they're not taking into account the biomechanics or biochemistry. And across all three, nasal breathing is the foundation of the pyramid. So with... In any research, when we look at breathing from a functional breathing point of view, the researcher wants to investigate breathing from the biochemistry, the biomechanics, and the psychophysiological point of view. Now, if a researcher is delving into assessing a person's breathing patterns from three dimensions, why are most healthcare professionals only teaching with one dimension? Yeah. And with the oxygen advantage... When, when I started that in 2014, I'll tell you why. I wanted to get away from the Buteco method to some extent, even though it's brilliant, but I could not change it because it's not my method. Mm. But with the oxygen advantage, I was able to encompass then the biochemistry, the biomechanics and resonance frequency. And I think this is the problem with breathing, that breathing throughout the years has been taught according to traditions. So if you think of left of field, you have the guru and the guru is teaching it. It's my way. And that's the only way. So now the student of the guru will not deviate outside of what the guru is saying because they might feel a betrayal to it, but it is held breathing back. And the other aspect then in terms of, you know, we need to investigate it. Yes, that breathing is more complex and it starts off so simple. Let's get people breathing in and out through the nose. Let's talk about the importance of the bore effect. Let's talk about the importance of breathing light. Let's use breath hold time as a measurement of functional breathing. And even though it's not perfect, we've been using it for 20 years, but Stanley was the first one to talk about it 50 years ago, that you could use breath hold time to assess an individual's breathlessness during rest and physical exercise. So just give you a simple example. You have some individual walking down the street and that individual is very out of breath. They've got, you know, quite severe breathlessness or exercise intolerance. Many people will say that this is due to a poor health issue that they have, but they may not question, could this be due to an increased chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide? Yeah. One researcher, Bernardi, he investigating his patients with chronic heart failure, he noticed that they have increased, they have exercise intolerance. But he said, is it the heart problem which is causing them to be overly breathless during physical exercise, or is it they have an increased chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide? He started teaching them slow breathing to reduce the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, and he was able to improve their exercise tolerance. He then looked at people with type 1 diabetes, people with chronic health complaints. They're very much in that sympathetic drive. They've got reduced sensitivity of the baroreflex. They've got increased activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And it's very important that we have to balance that. And how can we balance the autonomic nervous system? It's not just by doing slow breathing. We need to get nose breathing during sleep because If you have an individual such as diabetes or having asthma or epilepsy or other chronic conditions, they can have sleep disorder breathing. And when we have sleep disorder breathing, it will naturally put put us into that increased sympathetic drive. We start off with functional breathing during wakefulness. 
And by breathing functionally during wakefulness, it can help our breathing during sleep. When we can improve sleep quality and integrating with functional breathing, then we can help to strengthen the baroreflex. We can help to dampen the stress response. We can help to increase the relaxation response. And I think it's a very important step in the recovery because chronic stress, we can help to alleviate chronic stress when we can stimulate the vagus nerve. Inflammation is a killer and chronic stress contributes to inflammation. But you can help to alleviate inflammation by stimulating the vagus nerve. And some of those pathways are changing breathing patterns. So Nate, and I think it's great to have a conversation in this because there is so much to it. And I would like to take breathing out of the left of field because they've been talking about breathing for decades and all they have done in the most instances have put people off. It's not left of field, but nor is it right of field because breathing is very complex and we don't, not all the science is out there. And in a book that I published in 2021, I wanted to bring it into the center and reference it as best we can with the supporting information. We don't have all the science because even we don't even have a statistic of the incidence of mouth breathing in the adult population. All right. Because nobody, with the exception of two papers I've come across in 20 years, and the statistic was that 17% of the adult population persistently breathe through their mouths. Now, I think it's more than that, but we don't exactly know where. We need more research. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that was a real uh, download. Thank you for that. It's incredible. Um, it, it reminds me you're, you're like the the Bruce Lee of breathing that you've you know taken the bits of tradition and the modern and this piece and that piece to create uh, a concept and and a modality that really encompasses all those areas. Um, so the couple well, many things I wanted to, to threads to pull on there. Uh, it's probably more just reiterating some of those things you said. So um, probably the two things that jumped out at me reading your book and listening to you is really simple, like the nasal breathing and breathe light. So I just want to touch upon the, the nasal breathing and maybe just try and explore um, or the lack of nasal breathing, um, why this is happening. Uh, uh, James Nestor and his um, brilliant book, Breath, uh, outlined this, and so did you as well, around um, anatomically that our facial structures have probably changed um, since the Industrial you know, Revolution um, probably a lot of our listeners have read Western Price's brilliant book, um, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, and that really powerfully illustrated that nutrition or micronutrient deficiencies was a, a significant driver of um, crooked teeth and so forth. He was probably obviously a dentist looking at the arches, but uh, what's really struck me so obvious is the arches of the mouth is the the, 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 the floor of the, the nasal cavity, um, and that hasn't really been articulated until I think you and um, James Nestor. So can you describe the changes? You know, could this explain why so many of us um, nasal breathe today? And, and maybe touch upon traditionally a lot of the hunter-gatherer cultures seem to predominantly or exclusively um, breathe through their nose and not their mouth. Well, it's like this, Nathan. What does the mouth do in terms of breathing? Is there any function? Is there any part of the mouth devoted to the breath? Does the mouth warm the incoming air? Does it moisten? Mm. Does it regulate volume? Does it harness nasal nitric oxide? The mouth has no function. So the mouth is a hole. That's all it is. And it's a hole whereby air can go straight down your throat into your lungs. Our nose does all the works, all the work. And back in 1970s, one ENT called Dr. Morris Cottle, he said the human nose is responsible for 30 functions in the human body. Now, even as recent as 2020, we found papers, one, for example, from Israel, showing that athletes who breathe through their nose during sport have improved visuospatial awareness. There's a connection between the nose and the brain. And I think this has also protected the human species throughout evolution. It protects animals today because if a deer is grazing, the deer, of course, is using its mouth to to eat, but it's using its nose to sense for danger. Now, many human beings, we're using the mouth both to eat and to breed, but the mouth should be just seen as an emergency. There has been a debate in the dental community for 100 years plus about whether mouth breathing has caused and contributed to crooked teeth. I think Weston Price's book was wonderful. He absolutely put it out there. And people might criticize the science, but he showed photographs. You know, if you look at a photograph 
when a person has is smiling, count the number of teeth that you see. And when you see a really well-developed arch, it's broad-shaped and it's U-shaped, and you will see a lot of teeth. And I often use the comparison of Prince William and Kate Middleton. Pull up a photograph of the two together. Count how many teeth that you could see in Prince William and try and identify any black triangles either side of his jaws. So in other words, his jaw isn't sufficiently large enough to fill his mouth. Now Kate Kate Middleton, on the other hand, when she smiles, you will see an abundance of teeth and you also see a very wide facial structure. The problem with this is not just aesthetics. The problem is that if the mouth is too small, there's not enough room for the tongue. And if there's not enough room for the tongue, the tongue is more likely to encroach the airway. And it increases the risk of sleep disorder breathing. So nasal breathing during childhood and during the formative years is very, very important because of the position of the tongue. So ideally with the mouth closed, the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth. And it's the pressures exerted by the tongue which help to develop the maxilla and also to drive the growth of the face forward. So the craniofacial development is influenced by how the child is breathing. Back in 1975 or thereabouts, there was a Canadian orthodontist called E.P. Harvold. And he got a group of, he did quite terrible experiments with monkeys. He got young rhesus monkeys, six months old, and with, with some groups, he, he blocked their noses with silicon nose plugs. And he forced the monkeys to mouthbreed. And the experimental animals all acquired the same malocclusions and abnormalities in the development of the face and jaws as found in humans. Now, when I say talk about that experiment, people are aghast. But I'd like to put it out there that there are millions of children that are going through that experiment today and nobody's talking about it. I have all of those features. I have a very high narrow palate. I had overcrowding of teeth, very small jaws, jaws that are set back. My maxilla should be 20 mil forward. My mandible should be forward. I've got a double chin. I've got a smaller airway. So I am at a high risk of sleep disorder breathing. But it's more to this. If you look at a paper by Dr. Christian Guimano that was published in Pediatrics, the European Journal of Pediatrics in 2012, He looked at death and nasomaxillary complex, and I can send you on the paper. He looked at young infants who died as a result of sudden infant death syndrome. All of these infants had craniofacial abnormalities. They had the high narrow palate. They had infringement of the nasal cavity. And these youngsters died because of hypoxia during sleep. This could have been avoided. He said that these can be identified, and this is where the dental profession, I feel, has a really important role, because... We as human beings, we go to our dentist much more than we go to a medical doctor. And the dentist is looking into the roof of the mouth. And the dentist can identify for the risk factors. You know, does the person have, what is their malampati score, for example? Um, is there scalloping of the tongue? Is there overcrowding of teeth? What's the width of the jaws? What's the development forward? What are the risk factors? And these could have been all avoided. These can be, sorry, all identified but they have been overlooked. Tongue tie, for example. Is tongue tie considered when a newborn baby is born in in Australia, in hospitals? You know, mid-century, 16th century midwives in France had an extra long fingernail that if a baby was born with a tongue tie, they would clip it. Because, of course, if the tongue is tied to the floor of the mouth, the baby is not going to feed. She's not going to be able to nurse in the mother. Breastfeeding is not just about nutrition, but it's about manipulation of the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial growth. And then, of course, the baby, if if the baby is not able to feed from the mother, a bottle is introduced. But a bottle doesn't do anything to develop facial growth. And facial growth, we have to think, is about the airway. And also, a good-looking face. Because when we look at top athletes, and if you look at individuals you know top top athletes you will typically see that they have forward growth of the face they've got a wide facial structure you don't become a top athlete if you have an airway like mine and i've had scans done on my airway i've been over to dr james bronson in in washington 
Dr. William Hang in Agoury Hills in California. And I have all of those features. My parents didn't. So this happened in one generation. My daughter congenitally is missing teeth. So it's getting worse generation to generation. And Weston Price was right. He said that I can use one example when he looked at individuals living off the Hebride Islands off Scotland. When commerce came to the island and brought marmalade and sugar and chocolate and angel cake, whatever that was, he said first generation children became mouth breeders. Now that was back in what, 1938 or thereabouts when he published his work. But there has been a debate in the dentist world about whether this exists because dentists are asking the question, is it the mouth breathing which causes crooked teeth and narrow development of the jaws? Or is it the narrow development of the jaws which is causing crooked teeth? Listen, it doesn't matter because the dentist is in an ideal position to help develop those airways regardless of the cause because the baby could be born. You know, for ba- for example, babies are known to tumsuck in the womb. So the baby could be born with narrow facial structures. But wouldn't it be wonderful that this was one of the tests of the vital indicators that a young infant, that also what was assessed was their airway? Because can you imagine the horrifying experience of any parent having to lose their child due to sudden infant death syndrome, especially if it could be avoided? And I'm not going to say that this is all of it, but it's certainly part of it. Now, I'm going to talk about another paper by Dr. Karen Bonnock, which is published in Pediatrics in 2012. And she looked at 11,000 British children and in a town called Stratford-upon-Avon in the United Kingdom. Children who were snoring, she looked at them over a six-year period. Children who were snoring or had sleep disorder breathing by age five they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. When you read her paper, she talks about the critical importance of deep sleep for development, not only of the face and jaws. She doesn't mention about the face and jaws. She talks about development of the brain. So it's during the formative years that the child needs deep, deep sleep. And this will help to ensure development of the brain. And she goes on to say, I think she mentions that 3 million children in the United States that they have learning difficulties and special education needs um, contributed to by sleep disorder breathing. And in her paper, she'll talk about mouth breathing as a hallmark symptom of sleep disorder breathing or or mouth breathing as a contributory symptom to sleep disorder breathing. Now, we can go one step further. So what happens when a child then has sleep disorder breathing and goes to the medical doctor? The child's adenoids and tonsils are removed. That's the first typical, first gold standard of treatment. But the efficacy of this, even though this procedure has been carried out since 1975, for 50 years, the efficacy of it was first tested in 2010 by a paper by Batter Chargy that's published in the, the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. They looked at 570 plus children And out of the 570 kids who had their tonsils and adenoids removed to help with sleep disorder breathing, only 27% had their sleep disorders cured. 73% of these kids continue to have sleep disorder breathing post-surgery. Now, clearly there's something else going on here. We have to be looking at the development of the face. We have to be looking at breathing patterns. And I'll go one step further. Even my children who undergo tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. According to Dr. Christian Giemann, there's a 65% relapse within three years unless nasal breathing is restored. How many ENTs are actively encouraging and have a respiratory program in place post-tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy that when a child undergoes tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, that there's follow-up to ensure that that child is breathing through the nose? How many ear, nose and throat departments have that in place? Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Long-term gastrointestinal complaints can have a significant impact on day-to-day activities and overall quality of life. This was the case for Cassandra, who had experienced diarrhoea for 10 years. 
Fortunately, however, she was recommended the probiotic Lactobacillus plantarum 299b, and after taking it daily for four weeks, she found her symptoms began to subside. After continuing to take the probiotic, she said, I have had normal bowel motions for the first time in a decade. I'm surprised it works so well and I'm so grateful as well. To learn more about Lactobacillus plantarum 299v, visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now, back to the podcast. Well, you've certainly made a, a yeah profound case that nasal breathing is uh, imperative. Uh, I could, yeah, I could explore that forever. But I also want to go into your second point, um, again, which is probably surprising around breathing lighter and less. Um, but I love your discussion on the physiology that can explain why. So um, I just wouldn't mind going back over this idea, uh, carbon dioxide, which is often, I think, maligned in medicine as this sort of toxic component, but um, it does have some signaling properties and as you mentioned, this um, chemosensitivity that... So in like other areas of physiology, we've got set points where things have their... where, you know, homeostasis is kept, but um, that doesn't mean it's the ideal set point. And it sounds like there is some flexibility and plasticity in this in this um, chemosensitivity so we can retain more carbon dioxide. And just to um, quickly add, I think you really spell out really well in your book the importance of carbon dioxide for unloading oxygen off to the cell so we need it you know adequate level so a patient a people generally almost sort of quote-unquote deficient in carbon dioxide and they're um they're which is triggering their air hunger quickly too quickly it's a very interesting question and it's a very difficult one to answer traditionally we always spoke about carbon dioxide that individuals who have dysfunctional breathing and who are breathing mouth breathing and faster breathing and harder breathing have low CO2 in the blood. And it was the low CO2 in the blood that was triggering their symptoms. But then there was a paper in 1996 by Hornsveld. And he got a population, a group of individuals, I can't remember how many subjects, and he had them hyperventilate. So he did the hyperventilation provocation test but he had them rebreed carbon dioxide. So he kept carbon dioxide normal. He could still produce the symptoms of hyperventilation in quite a few of these subjects. So this then kind of cast doubt on the whole CO2 theory. So it's a gray area, but in saying that carbon dioxide also, you know, it's been recognized in physiology of playing a number of key roles, such as the primary regulator of blood pH. It is a vasodilator. It's also a bronchodilator. And it also um, assists in the release of oxygen from the red blood cells to the tissues and organs. And I would say to people, just to practice this, you know, practice breathing light and see what changes it brings to your physiology. So if you're sitting at home this evening and once you're not driving and bring your attention out of your mind onto your breathing and just to feel the slightly colder air coming into your nose and to feel the slightly warmer air leaving the nose. And as you feel your breathing, gently slow down and soften the speed of the air coming into the nose. Really soften the speed of the air coming into the nose, almost that you're not breathing. And on the exhalation, have a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. So by softening the speed of the breath coming into your nose, and by having a really relaxed and a prolonged exhalation, the objective is to breathe about 30% less air into the body. By breathing less air, carbon dioxide will accumulate in the blood because it's not able to leave the body so quickly through the lungs. And as carbon dioxide accumulates, you feel air hunger. But practice this for about three minutes or so. Practice gently softening your breathing and breathing less air. And see, does it influence the circulation in your fingers? See, does it change the saliva in the mouth? See, does it help you to downregulate? And in most instances, yes, it will, because it's just normal physiology, except when the air hunger initiates a fight or flight response. So that's why I had to go differently with the chap last night, because the air hunger put him into a panic mode, so I had to step back a little bit. But I've kind of learned that over the years, that you, you have to kind of tweak it according to the individual. But for most instances, you know, I would say to people, practice this because this was really what drove it home to me 
You know, people talk about breathing exercise. If you apply breathing exercises, it can make changes quickly. That's the benefit. I felt a total difference in my night's sleep by getting my mouth closed during sleep. Completely different. And it happened in two days. My asthma symptoms reduced by 50% in two weeks. And I had asthma for 20 years. 50% reduction. And nobody told me to nose breathe. And just as we're talking here, the first trial that was conducted in the Buteco method in the Western world happened at the Matter Hospital in Brisbane, Australia. And they brought in, they initially had 170 subjects, but by the time they selected them and matched them, they had about 19 or 20 in the Buteco group. And 19 or 20 did the in-house hospital program, which was the control group. They measured their lung volume, etc., all of their parameters pre-trial. And in the Buteco group, after 12 weeks, their minute ventilation had reduced from 14.1 litres down to 9.6. They had 70% less symptoms. They had 90% less need for bronchodilating medication. They had 49% less need for inhaled corticosteroid. Their lung function remained the same at the end of the trial as it did beforehand. But we had to have to bear in mind, they had almost 50% less need for medication. In other words, they were able to maintain the same lung function with a better quality of life and almost 50% less need for medication. The control group, which is taught typically and traditionally by physiotherapists, respiratory physiotherapists, 0% change. 0%. Now, despite that trial, Dr. Charles Mitchell, who was the investigator, wasn't fully convinced because the Buteco group didn't improve their lung volume. They didn't improve their, for example, forced vital capacity, um, peak flow, FEV, etc., all of the, the parameters that they look at. But he didn't take into consideration the quality of life and he didn't take into consideration the reduction of medication. And if you have a group of asthma patients under hospital care, that hospital will have selected the best medication for that patient and will have brought their lung lung parameters up to a reasonably decent level. And there's a law of diminishing returns then. So you can't we can't always expect that by introducing a breathing technique that we're, all, we're also going to be able to increase forced expiratory flow or whatever. You know, it, it can't. So my point here is that there has been 20 clinical trials since then, and yet most people with asthma don't know of the Buteco method. And it's not a perfect method. But what does it say? Nose breathing for asthma. Breathe light. Do some breath holds. And we select breath holds according to the individual, depending on how they are. And we see the changes. And I've seen changes, Nathan. I've seen individuals, young kids that were hospitalized every six weeks, and they stopped going to hospital as a result of it. Now, it's really, really unfortunate. And I have to confess from my point of view, in 2004 and 2005, I stopped reaching out to anybody in the healthcare profession because I felt that they didn't want to know about it. So I started writing books. And I started putting all of the information into books and putting the books out there. And books that I wrote back in 2003 and 2004 are still in the top 10 list in Amazon.com for asthma books. And they wouldn't have lasted unless there was something in it. You know, and we've been talking about all of the stuff that James Nestor talks about. We've been saying that as well for 20 years. You know, I would love to see healthcare professionals look at breathing because I would say that by changing your breathing patterns, you can influence many disciplines in medicine. Mental health. You know, I'll give you this example. Somebody comes into my, I wrote about this in in the, the later book. A woman with depression coming in and she was in a bad state. And I asked her, I said, I said, how do you feel when you wake up in the, in the morning? And she says she's absolutely exhausted when she wakes up. And I said to her, has anybody asked you about your sleep quality? And she said, no. And here you have a woman going to healthcare professionals for quite a number of years. This woman was not a teenager. Um, she was in her 30s and I'm not sure exactly how many years. But nobody asked her about her sleep quality and nobody investigated her sleep. Now, I would suspect that woman had sleep apnea and insomnia. And we know from the literature 
that when obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia go together, and it's fairly common, there's a phenotype called low arousal threshold, depression risk is high. How many people with mental health illnesses, it's not just a mental health issue they have, they have a sleep problem. How can we function in today's day and age if we're going around with half, you know, terrible quality sleep? And we can bring in breathing exercises, but unfortunately no research because the gold standard of treatment is the CPAP machine, that great Australian invention. But the problem is that 50% of people can't tolerate it. So you've got 50%. So even though the CPAP machine works and there's no question, it significantly reduces the AHI for many, many people. It helps reduce their risk of sleep apnea, but 50% of people can't tolerate it. What does this group of people do? I wrote a paper that was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. In, in, I wrote it with two ear, nose and throat doctors in, tw- in January of 2021. And it's, it's exploring the dimensions of breathing to the phenotypes of obstructive sleep apnea. And the phenotypes, because traditionally obstructive sleep apnea was seen primarily as an anatomical issue. But for the last seven or eight years, it's been recognized that there's four characteristics. One is anatomical. One is called high loop gain or loop gain, which would be influenced by your breathing patterns. Arousal threshold, which is when you are a light sleeper and you wake up quite easily, is also we can influence it by breathing patterns. And upper airway recruitment, we can influence by breathing, by changing breathing patterns, but also by introducing what's called myofunctional therapy. So there are, there is help out there. And I think, you know, we need to, and I've been guilty of it too, you know, like once we do our training, we often get stuck in this box and our time is so consumed by working with clients that we don't have the time to continuously look outside of that. We have to look outside of it. Why have children been let down for a hundred years? Why is there nobody talking about nose breathing? Well, there's some. You know, you've got a great orthodontist in Randwick in Australia, Dr. Derek Mahoney. He's got a team of ENTs. Every child that comes in his door, he will assess their airway. He's not just an orthodontist. And I know when I last spoke with him, he's doing a PhD. And if I can remember correctly, it's on the impact of sleep disorder breathing on ADHD in children. And a huge cohort, a huge population over many years that he's looking at. So... It's starting to get out there, but I would love to see it that it's it shouldn't be just, you know, integrative medicine. It should be, we need the disciplines. We need the, the professions in the university. Every student who is going through medical school and dental school and all of the different disciplines, they should be taught in universities. But it seems that the universities are often the slowest that they are lagging behind, 20 years behind, because it has taken 20 years for breathing to get out there. And I know it because of my own workload. Um, You know, in terms of the support staff and whatever, I know it. The last two years has been the the year of the breath. Um, But it's great to see. And I would really love people to delve more into it. You know, if anybody is listening, how can you delve more into this? Start breathing through your own nose. Wear tape on your mouth at night if you have to. Um, there's a very easy tape now. It's my own tape, and I don't want to plug it or anything like that. But <laughs> if you were scared about putting tape across your lips, because that's often what puts people off, there is a tape that I have is Myo tape, and the whole purpose of the Myo tape is it's it's an elasticated strip that surrounds the mouth to bring the lips wow. together with tension. Now we actually brought it for children. Because we, we couldn't put tape across a child's lips. And part of the re-education with children is that we have them when they're distracted as to wear the myotape. So if they're watching television or if they're on iPhone or whatever, and, you know, a kid gets distracted or if they're tired and the mouth is open, their mouth hangs open, the tape will pull their lips together. And the premise is that we're sending a signal or we're trying, trying to change behavior, neuroplasticity that every time the child opens the mouth, they get a signal to close their lips because it's not just about treating the nose. And I remember, you know, going back to, um, I had an operation on my nose in 1994 and the operation was a success. 
but nobody told me to breathe through it afterwards. <laughs> so it's not just the pediatric population that there's no follow-up post-surgery, but it's also the adult population. It's not enough just to treat the nose. We do need to have something in place to encourage nasal breathing post-surgery, post-treatment. And all of the exercises, they're all up on YouTube. You know, I put out an app, our app, Buteco Clinic app. It's downloadable for free. All of the exercises for children are completely free in it. And many of the exercises for adults. So this is accessible. For COVID, we have working with people with long COVID. And I will just touch on this because it's kind of, you know, timely. But over the years, I worked with many people with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And with some people, I made okay results. And with others, I didn't. And with chronic fatigue syndrome, the autonomic nervous system was absolutely taxed. Long COVID, we are seeing it very similar. When I'm working with somebody with long COVID, I can't help but think there are so many similarities to chronic fatigue syndrome that these individuals can be very breathless. For example, their breath hold time can be three and four seconds. And I'll just talk about that, the bolt score. The breath hold time that I'm talking about can be used as an indicator of whether your client has dysfunctional breathing or not. To measure it, take a normal breath in and out through the nose and you pinch the nose and hold your nose and you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of the diaphragm and then to let go but to breathe through the nose. It's not the test of a maximum breath hold time. It's the test of how long can you hold your breath for comfortably until the first physiological reaction to breathe. Now, people with long COVID... Their autonomic nervous system is so taxed. Their breath hold time can be three and four seconds. These people can't do slow breathing. So, for example, some hospitals, one um, hospital in New York is encouraging to breathe in for four seconds and out for six seconds. And theoretically, it makes so much sense. But if your breath hold time is four seconds, you're not going to do it. You're not going to be able to slow down your respiratory rate to um, 10 breaths. So breathing in for four and out for six, six breaths per minute. What we start off with is small little breath holes to help with breathing recovery. And then we increase the small little breath holes. And then we will have them breathe light to change the biochemistry and to stimulate the vagus nerve. We will also bring in humming, nasal breathing. We will bring in and taking them from their chest because when the breath hole time gets higher, it's easier then to bring people from upper chest breathing to breathing lower with greater recruitment of the diaphragm. Because... When we are feeling labored breathing, there's a very natural reaction to breathe through the mouth and to breathe harder and faster using the upper chest because we want to alleviate the feeling of suffocation. But when we breathe that way, so much of the air that we are taking into our body is lost to dead space and alveolar ventilation is significantly reduced. So just in simple maths, if you were breathing 20 breaths per minute, and a tidal volume of 300 mil, you're taking in six liters. Right. When you subtract dead space, which is fixed at about 150 mil, only 50% of the air that the individual is breathing is actually getting into the small air sacs in the lungs. And if you reduce the respiratory rate there without increasing minute ventilation, and that's very important because we can't just focus on the respiratory rate alone. We also have to look at tidal volume. So by slowing it down from 20, maybe down to 12 breaths per minute, We can increase alveolar ventilation from 3 to 4.2 litres just by slowing down the respiratory rate with no increase in minute ventilation. So coming back then, you know, with different people, I think it's very important to, to go beyond the traditional emphasis of looking at the biomechanics. Nasal breathing has to be embraced because even you could argue that when you breathe through your nose, by breathing through the nose, the resistance to your breathing during the day is two to three times that of the mouth. And breathing through your nose is adding a resistance to the diaphragm breathing muscle and will help to maintain that strength and function. Yeah. And also nose breathing, despite the few studies, there have been very few studies and looking at when you breathe through your nose, do you have greater recruitment of the chest or diaphragm? Nasal breathing, you've got greater recruitment of the diaphragm. 
So yeah, I think it's important, you know, that if you want to improve the biomechanics, biomechanics, also consider the biochemistry. Why is yeah. the person breathing fast in upper chest in the first place? Because they can have an increased sensitivity to carbon dioxide. And my last point, sorry, because I know I'm talking too much. That <laughs> breath hold time that we spoke about, there is a professor of physical therapy called Kyle Kiesel um, from Evansville University in the United States. And he he selected its convenient sample of 52, 51 individuals. And he looked at their breathing from a biochemical point of view, a biomechanical point of view, and a psychophysiological point of view to screen for breathing pattern disorders. And you see how complex it is. You know, if you wanted to look at all three dimensions, it's going to take too much time. He wanted to create a simple screening tool. And he used breath hold time. And his conclusion was, if your breath hold time is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. Okay. So it's a very good, if you if you have, say, students coming in your door, sit them down for five minutes, allow their breathing to relax, and measure, it's the control pause from Buteco, or it's the bolt score from the Oxygen Advantage, measure it, and that will give you some feedback of your students' breathing. Brilliant, thank you. At the one last area I wanted to touch upon, um, I don't know if we frame it up as this resonance principle, but I'm, I'm trying to get my head around and understand how modulating your breathing can influence um, your vagal tone, your nervous system, maybe even your immune system. Like there's the, the Wim Hof, it sounds like it activates your sympathetic nervous system, which can be um, therapeutic. Um, there's alternative nasal breathing, which... Um, some suggest activates the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, depending on what um, nostril you're going through. But is it the cadence? Is it the, the timing? How does the yeah the the nervous system and maybe you know the um, immune system connected to the way we modulate our breath? Well, I suppose it's the feedback of the vagus nerve, and it's it's complex again, and not everybody has the answers. The feedback or communication of the vagus nerve up to the brain, 80, 80 to 90% of the nerve fibers are from the body up to the brain. And the vagus nerve is innervating the major organs. Now, traditionally, over the last 30 years by Gervitz, it was found that when you slow down the respiratory rate to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, so a good average would be six, and only to do this for maybe 10 minutes twice daily that it helps to stimulate the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve secretes a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine and acetylcholine causes the heart rate to slow down. And when the heart rate slows down, the brain is interpreting that the body is safe. So you can help to dampen the, the stress response, but you could do it that way, but you can always think of the inhalation to the exhalation, the inhalation, the foot has taken off the brake. The vagus nerve steps back. The exhalation is primarily under the control of the body's relaxation response. Yeah, okay. It's the speed of the exhalation that determines whether you stress the body and mind or you relax the body and mind during rest and during sleep. If you breathe out fast, it's a stressor. But if you breathe out slow and relaxed and prolonged, the brain is interpreting that the body is safe. And I think it's a very useful tool that whenever we get into a difficult situation, focus your attention on your breathing and have a few slow and prolonged exhalations. And all you have to do it for is 90 seconds or so. When you breathe through your nose during sleep, it helps to improve vagal tone. When you breathe light, it helps to improve vagal tone. Now, there's something else also here is the baroreflex. And the baroreflex are the pressure receptors in the major blood vessels in the aorta and the carotid arteries. And we want these pressure receptors to be very sensitive to changes in blood pressure. So, for example, if our blood pressure increases, the baroreceptors should pick up on this and send signals via the brain to the blood vessels, to the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rate to come down to normalize blood pressure. And conversely, if the blood pressure drops, the baroreceptors pick up on it and send signals via the brain to the blood vessels to constrict and the heart rate to increase to normalize blood pressure. The sensitivity of the baroreflex provides us a very good indicator of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So we have stimulation of the vagus nerve, but also entangled in this is the baroreflex. 
So how can we influence the bar reflex and vagal tone? By breathing light, because increased carbon dioxide stimulates the vagus nerve. By breathing slow, to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, but also by breathing low, with greater amplitude of the diaphragm. And I think part of the reason that the Wim Hof method is working is because of the greater amplitude of the diaphragm, the increased tidal volume, that it's not just possibly the stress response, even though they did find a correlation between the, the increase, I think, in epinephrine and the immune response of the individual. But the only thing I will say about hyperventilation and breath holding, it is extreme. Personally, I am afraid to teach it to the vast majority of my students. I, it's, it's too much, in my opinion. And I've made mistakes over the years. And maybe that's why I'm more cautious. Like I've put people into panic attacks. I've put people coming in with chronic fatigue syndrome. I've completely floored them. And I have made mistakes because I went in with exercises that were not suitable to the individual. I went in a little bit too hard and too fast. But this is the experience that you develop over time. I feel that the the Wim Hof method, it's suitable for young people, for healthy people. And I also will question, because we do hyperventilation and breath holding, I don't want blood oxygen saturation dropping down to 60% and 50% and 30%. Do we really need to do this? You know, there's an idea out there that the more you push the body and mind, the better. No, we have to bear in mind that, yes, you can, when we talk about breathing, any breathing exercise, Nathan, ask yourself, what is this breathing exercise doing to the biochemistry, to the biomechanics, but also to the autonomic nervous system? Is it down-regulating or is it up-regulating? How do you up-regulate? Do a long breath hold. It's a sympathetic activation. It's a stress response or hyperventilate. It's a stress response. And the other thing is, can, is everybody suitable to that? You know, for people with anxiety and yes, people, there's many people who are getting great benefits from doing the Wim Hof method, but I think it should be selected. And the other thing is that I would say, it's not just about doing a breathing technique when you're lying on the mat. I want people to be breathing through their nose during sleep, breathing through the day, breathing during physical exercise. If they get stressed, how should they breathe? To give them the, these tools, I want to try and, it's everyday breathing pattern. It's not just when you're in a yoga studio or you're in a Pilates studio. The, the instructor should be concerned with how should you be breathing outside of the studio? That's even more important or, you know, than what you're breathing inside the studio. I think we need to make some tweaks in this in terms of breathing. And there is massive potential in the yoga world if the instructors understood breathing from a number of different dimensions because they could have their students coming in with asthma, with panic disorder, with fibromyalgia, with increased breathlessness during physical exercise, with poor sleep. And these are the disciplines that we can influence by changing breathing. There is a massive potential if the healthcare instructor knew more about breathing and delving into that. Well, yeah, really well said. Thank you. That's helped contextualize it. Um, and yeah, I really uh, resonate, pardon the pun, with that idea that it's not just the, the breathing you do in the class, but the, the 23 hours of the rest of the day that's really important. Uh, Patrick, it's been incredible to hear you. Um, you will probably wear the appetite for many listeners. So as we sign off, what would be the next steps for if someone's interested in in assimilating and, and learning more about this? Like it's such a, a vast field and, um, you know, the, the knowledge is increasing. But, yeah, where, where would someone who is new to this area, how, how would they find out more? Um, for people in Australia, we have Mim Baim. She's a naturopath in Sydney. Um, she's an instructor, one of our – well, she works, of course, independently, but Mim is associated with us. And we have Dean Gladstone. Um, he's a Bondi rescue. So he's really well known, I think, in Australia as well. And he's one of our oxygen advantage instructors. And there's many others. So there are people that are on the ground. And the books then are available um, from the websites. One website is called butecoclinic.com. And that's kind of more a health-oriented website. 
And the other website for performance is called oxygenadvantage.com. And um, I have nine books on different topics, and the most recent ones have been Atomic Focus. Because I suppose the one thing is, Nathan, I feel that mindfulness is not working for the very person who needs it the most. Number one is because a lot of men, alpha males, don't want to necessarily go and do mindfulness. But people with anxiety and panic disorder very often have dysfunctional breathing patterns. So what I want to do is whenever anybody comes into me with a racing mind, I want to deepen their sleep first. I want to change their physiology, change their physiology, dampen the stress response, and then bring in breath and body and mind aware. And we've also a lot of videos up on YouTube. I, like a lot of the exercise we've put up free anyway on YouTube. So I put an hour video up there two days ago to improve concentration and focus. And that's on our Oxygen Advantage channel. And there's other stuff on Buteco Clinic channel. We're on Instagram, etc. So yeah, the information is out there. And uh, reach out to us. We have courses, etc. Everything going on. So Brilliant. Well, yeah, just think back to that. It sounds like almost a sliding doors moment. You read that article and it's really, you know, set you off in a different direction in your life. And, yeah, I think uh, I'm certainly grateful and I'm sure thousands of people across the world are grateful that you've dedicated, you know, the last two decades to really understanding breathing and putting it into context. And, yeah, congratulations. And, and thanks so much for your time. You've been, yeah, really, really generous with your time. Thanks very much, Nathan. It's fortunate. I, I love the work, you know. It helps. <laughs> Absolutely. make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.